What's your view of humanity? Of your fellow human beings, those sitting beside you, uh, those in front, those behind, those that you do life with, those that you do work with, your friends, your family, colleagues, neighbours? Do you look for the best? Is that your starting point? Uh, Or do you look for the worst and build from there? Is it that most of us are decent folk? There's just a few bad eggs knocking around. This week we've seen both, haven't we? Sides of humanity, the incredible rescue scenes of the residents of earthquake-hit communities digging survivors out with their bare hands. And then we see scenes of looters in those same towns and cities, going about with guns, taking all that they can get their hands on. Or sporting fans singing the national anthem side by side, the Welsh and the Scots yesterday, if you watched that. And then we see ugly scenes of violence outside football grounds around the country. Are we inherently good or are we inherently bad? What is it? Here's a quote from Rebecca McLaughlin's book as she wrote of 10 key questions that young people uh, should uh, know. I'm still on that sort of level of book um, because of my age, still class myself as fairly young. Uh, And here was her starting quote Uh, from the chapter of Why Heaven and Hell, and she wrote this. Most of us like to think that we're basically good people. We know we're not perfect. We sometimes do bad things, but at heart, we think we're pretty good. We're not like the murderers we hear about on the news or read about in history books. So the idea that one day we might be judged by God doesn't seem so fair. But what if at heart we actually aren't good? See, our view of humanity profoundly shapes our thinking on what humanity needs. Let me say that again. Our view of humanity profoundly shapes our thinking on what humanity needs. Our culture suggests that humanity is inherently good. And what we need to do within our schools and education systems, we just need to unlock people's potential. We need to search for the hero inside ourselves, sang Heather Small once upon a time. Or Christianity is actually just a, a help to lead a better life. That's what the current culture would say. That's potentially what some angles of Christianity would say, the church would say. And you see, to trust the Bible, you have to come to a different conclusion. That the liberal secularist view of the culture that we find ourselves in, there's a different view. The Bible says that we are not inherently good. From chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has been talking about the problem that we all face. What is that? It is the wrath of God against our sin. What is our sin? It's our rebellion against him and our rejection of him. The wrath of God is our greatest problem, and we all face it. 
because we are all inherently bad ever since the fall. Paul is in this dense section. He's moving towards the encapsulating summary. We'll see this next week as Johnny comes to preach. Verse 10. Let me just give you a teeny snapshot. Paul says there is no, no one righteous. Not even one. Verse 20 of chapter 3. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. Paul is in this dense passage and he has been helping the church in Rome to get it. To get what? That both Jew and Gentile will be judged according to what they have done. And thus all are found guilty before a righteous God. Uncomfortable reading, listening for the Christians in the church in Rome. And remember, Paul has already said, look, your faith is being reported all over the world. They're in Christ, they're Christians. They're going good, but this is uncomfortable reading, listening as the, as the letter would have been read out to them. And it's also been incomf- uncomfortable for us, hasn't it? I think it's been a, a tough few weeks in the first few chapters of Romans, coming face to face with God's verdict on humanity. Not mine, not my neighbours, not the newsreaders, but God's verdict on humanity. And therefore, what needs to be done? In home groups this week, it was great to be back, wasn't it, for those of you who are part of home groups? We openly said it's been a tough few weeks. Now, we, we talked about that it, it, it's not... It's not often good for us to to hear of of such reality when it comes to facing the facts about us. That we're inherently not good. It's God's verdict on us. See, in these verses, verses 1 to 8, Paul spends time anticipating and then answering some imaginary questions that will have arisen from the previous chapter. Previous chapter, remember, look back in your black books if you made notes. Simon's two points from last week. Using the law as a way to life only leads to death, point one. Point two, trying to find righteousness in the things we do only leads to rejecting God's free gift. That's been all of chapter two. And Paul is on a mission to get to the all-encapsulating point of verse 10. That we heard before in verse 20. That's the destination. That's where he's going. For the church in Rome to get it again. In case they think of themselves as inherently good. No get this. It's still a little way ahead. We've got one more week. And what Paul does in effect. If if we're on the motorway to that all encapsulating thought of verse 10. If that's the motorway. What Paul does in verses 1 to 8. He He just comes into the service station. He comes into, uh, what's the service station up the road there? Cherwell. Cherwell Valley, is it? No, I've just made that up, Cherwell. That's where he pulls into. For a bit of a rest. What is he doing as he pulls into the service station? And let's not miss this point. We see Paul respecting and caring for these Christians again. We know he dearly loves them. He puts himself in their shoes to consider 
what sticking points they might still have. And so he, he, as we work through this imaginary kind of Q&A session, we get Paul trying to work out, if I was a Jewish Christian in Rome, what would my objections be with all that I've heard in chapter 2? And therefore, I think as we come to it, I think it's quite tricky for us to apply that today. I've been wrestling with it all week. They are not questions, as we'll hear, as you've heard Mike read already. They're not questions that we hear today. They're not questions that I think that you will have. Unless you're a Jew. Unless you've, you're, you're an ancestral Jew. And of course there might be one or two here. But I think it's hard to apply. But we'll give it a go. We'll try and work hard. The imaginary... Q&A sessions begin. It's with Paul and those he longs to see. Remember, he deeply cares for these Jewish converts within the church that they get this right. The tone is not an angry press conference. Okay, it's not Paul and an imaginary friend going at it. It's, it's not that. We're to imagine two mates over a beer in the angel. That's what we're to imagine. Or, or maybe two friends, Paul. And one of the Jewish converts over coffee and cake in coffee one. Uh, or the new Starbucks in Sainsbury's. I didn't know there was a Starbucks. In, how long has Starbucks in Sainsbury's been there? Not long, thank you. If I'd have known, I'd have had shares. No. So that's, that's the angle, okay? Paul and an imaginary friend. The questioner begins. Can you imagine? He's adding in sugar into his coffee and he's slowly stirring his brew. And his eyes are fixed on Paul. Paul, verse 1. All right. Everything you've said, Paul, is there any advantage being a Jew or bearing the sign of being one of God's covenant people? Paul, let me get this absolutely clear because I can't see there being any advantage at all. Of being a Jew. That's the question. The first question is four questions and we'll work through them. See Paul's answer? Oh, my friend, there is much advantage. There are many things, you see that? Many things. Much in every way. A plethora. There's an abundance of reasons of an advantage that Jews have. But here's just one, says Paul. There is great value in having and knowing the words of God. Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Paul is actually saying this too. You've got God's word and you've been entrusted with God's word. It's God revealing himself. It's the revelation of God himself. And he's revealed it to you, the Jew, the ancestral Jew, God's people. This is how he reveals and has done through time. He speaks. And it's been captured in the Bible as we have now. Jews, you know that was for you. It was for you at the beginning. That word entrusted is a big, big deal. You know when you're entrusted with something? You're asked to look after it. You're asked to cherish it, to hold on to it. I remember the moment when I was 17, I passed my driving test for two weeks. 
I was a young professional footballer uh, at a club, Carlisle United, and uh, all of our away journeys were on a bus from Carlisle to wherever we played down south. And it was always down south. Hours and hours of driving. And the first teamers, they always met. Uh, they had to meet on the bus in Carlisle, wherever they lived. Some lived far away, Birmingham. And they had to drive up to Carlisle to get the bus. And then the bus take them down. And what the older pros would do to the younger pros, uh, they would ask us to drive their cars down to the service stations so that they didn't have to come on the bus all the way back up to Carlisle to come back down to Birmingham. And I remember David Curry, BMW 5 Series. Blanks. There's the keys. I need you to drive over to Scotch Corner. Wow. 70 miles away from Carlisle. Passed my test two weeks. I sat there in the car. And another lad, uh, he had a Mercedes. And we smiled at each other as the bus was driving out of the ground. And we followed. We let them go for a minute. And then on the motorway, uh, we flew past them entrusted with a BMW 5 Series. <laughs> it's not that I was just giving it and do what you want with it, Lance. Oh, drive wherever you want and break all the laws. No, no, here is something precious. And I'm entrusting it to you, said David Curry. Here's what God says to the Jew. Call is there advantage being a Jew? Paul's going, of course there is. Do you see what God has done? He's given you his word. He's revealed himself and he's He's giving his word to you. Paul, in another letter, says to Timothy, you've got to guard this good deposit. It is very good. Is there an equivalent, equivalent question for us? Perhaps the question is, is there any advantage in being religious? Uh, let me explain what I mean. Is there any advantage being brought up in a Christian home? Is there any advantage uh, being taught to read the Bible from an early age? Is there any advantage uh, if you went to confirmation classes at school? Is there any advantage involved in the church youth group as a teenager? Is there any advantage if you were taken to church all your childhood? What would your answer be? Is there any advantage in those things? I think Paul would have said, much. Oh, for sure. Much in every way. You've been taught well. And you've been brought up understanding the character of God and the rescue of God for all mankind. But, 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 when it comes to that dealing with the greatest problem we all face, facing the wrath of God, nah, nah. No advantage. Here's Paul's, or here's the second question that comes Paul's way. Paul's friend now tucking into the cake. So with crumbs just spitting everywhere. He's trying to grasp this. So, if Israel, with all the privileges, was unfaithful, how can God be faithful to his promises? That's verses 3 and 4. Let me read the question again. I've paraphrased it from what you're reading. I think this is the question. So if Israel, with all the privileges, was unfaithful, how can God be faithful to his promises? Comes the question to Paul. And, and you can see the questioner, he's wrestling with this. 
Doesn't that put God in the dock? I think he's failed us, hasn't he? Says the questioner. How can he continue to fulfill the promises he has made? Hasn't he broken them already? And Paul says, no way. No, no, no. Of course, no way. Look, despite his people's failures, even though they were given the very word of God themselves, the revealed word of God, despite his people's failures and their faithlessness to him, that cannot nullify or discredit God's promises. No, no, no. Of course it can't. God is true. He is true to his word and he's true to his promises. He is faithful. John Calvin, the great reformer, he says this. The primary axiom of all Christian philosophy is the faithfulness of God. God cannot be faithless. God has to be faithful to himself. And you see what Paul does here. He quotes Psalm 51 verse 4. He quotes David when David acknowledged that God was very just to punish him from sin. From the sin of adultery. David acknowledged that God was just to punish him. God is faithful as he stands by his covenant promises and his covenant threats. Paul is saying, look... Do you get that God is faithful? He promises that his curse will be on those that break the law. And David is saying, I am just. Psalm 51 verse 4, the whole verse says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is David. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See what Paul is saying? Actually, our faithlessness reveals how committed to his truth he is. How focused on his rescue plan he is. What's our application in trying to understand this question? Isn't it that we would recognise our sin like David? Isn't it that we would see ourselves, we would look at ourselves in the mirror, and we would see ourselves not as inherently good... Made in the image of God for sure, but not inherently good because of the fall. That we would look at ourselves in the mirror and we would see ourselves as God sees us. And we would appreciate that God's verdict over us is guilty. And that is justified. That is right. And that is good. Let's move on to question three. Verse five. Again, a little paraphrase, but I think you'll follow it if you've got verse 5 open. Here's the question. But if our unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, says the questioner, is that fair for him to judge us? See what the question is saying? If God's people's unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, shouldn't God be pleased to show how righteous he is? In fact... Doesn't that mean that that actually God is the one that we should blame? Paul's answer, certainly not. If he was in the angel with his friend, he'd probably shout out, you 
idiot. No. No, of course not. On that basis, says Paul, God would not judge anyone in the world. He wouldn't judge the Gentiles. And we've already seen from the first uh, few chapters, and we've all agreed that it is good that God judges. It is right that God is the judge, says Paul. And you agree with me, Jew. See, if God doesn't pour out his wrath on us, the Jews, he is not faithful. He's got to be faithful in the way that he deals with the people who have rebelled, who cannot follow the law. There is nothing that excuses our unfaithfulness, says Paul. He will be the righteous judge over all. And we've said that that's a really good thing, remember? But that means that we're in the dark, not God. One commentator says this about such a question that the questioner, the imaginary questioner, gives to Paul. It is symptomatic of our sinfulness that we, who are so clearly guilty ourselves, should try to justify ourselves by ourselves by throwing mud at God's character. What's our application? Isn't it that we have a tendency to blame God? I think if you're anything like me, I can blame God for so much. That's surely God's fault. Why won't God take that temptation away? Why won't God give me the desires of my heart? A job, more money, a husband, a wife... Children, a good night's sleep. It's God's fault. Why the devastation in Turkey and Syria? God should do something about that. God's to blame, isn't he? You see, too often God's in the dock for us. Too often we put him in the dock and we become the jury. That's what is going on. Over a cup of coffee and cake with that imaginary questioner to Paul. No, says Paul in verse 6. Certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? God doesn't judge so that we only can see his righteousness. To please himself. To point the finger and say, ha ha, I'm right. No, no, God's good in his judgment. And here's the last question. Verses 7 and 8. Okay. So if my sin enables God to look better, shouldn't I sin more so that we, may, so that we see more of his glory instead of face his condemnation? So linked uh, with question 3. And you can imagine as Paul is sitting with his imaginary friend. He's spluttered his cake out. He's knocked over his coffee as his hands fly up in desperation. Do you know I've been accused of thinking this, says Paul. And I definitely don't think it. Paul has been slandered. Claimed that he's encouraged sin. 
sin so that God's grace may abound. No doubt he's been slandered and claimed this way because of his focus on grace by faith, not works. In our endeavour to justify ourselves and condemn God. Just by doing that, we see the depth of the sin of the human heart. Verse 8, Paul says, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Paul says the condemnation of the Jews, God's chosen people, is a reminder to us that no one, uh, that one, sorry, that one can be zealous, that one can be knowledgeable, uh, that one can be religious and yet not know God. And yet not come to him because they're unable. It's the big question for us at Town Church, I think. Do we know God or just know about God? How do we apply? Paul is helping his readers and us and does see the deep rooted character of God. He's true in his judgment. If God will judge the earth in perfect justice, then he must judge Israel. God remains true. And Paul all this time has put God in the dock in Romans 3, 1 to 8. And yet now he has been acquitted. Do you see that? Their condemnation is just. God is good in his judgment. Of course, even thinking such a thing just shows you the depravity of your own heart, says Paul. The Jews fail to obey and love and we fail to obey and love. And we cannot make it to God through our following of the law. That only leads to death. And as we wrap up, do you, do you see how he remains true to his righteous judgment for the one who recognises their need of rescue? Do you see how he remains true to his righteous judgment for the one who recognises their need of rescue? Do you see how he does that in Christ? Do you see? Do you see that he doesn't brush my sins under the carpet and says, oh, I'm for you, Lanks, in every way. He says, I love you so much that I will deal with your sin. That my judgment, righteous judgment is real and it's true. And instead of falling on your shoulders, dear Lanks, I will put it on the shoulders of my one and only son. That if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will go free. And so as I speak to you now, majority of you are Christians. Do you see that your essential identity is different? You've been changed, you're saved, you're new creatures in Christ. That the word sinner is no longer our identity. You see what Paul has done with his imaginary friend? If you're thinking of such ways, if you're still contemplating of, of working out how the law will save you, do not. Christ has done it all. God is true. Be reassured that God will judge in truth and righteousness. And dear Christian today, be reassured that God has judged in truth and righteousness. And that truth and righteousness has fallen on the shoulders of Jesus. You see, as we speak... 
to our friends about Jesus who do not know him. You see, as we, we, we want them uh, to trust in Jesus, you see, we're not trying to present a lifestyle option. We're not suggesting that they try God out for fulfillment or satisfaction, even though he does give that, of course. We're not suggesting it's a, a better thing to do, to be present on a Sunday with us. See, we want our friends and our family to wake up to the fact that their creator is rightfully angry with the whole of humankind. And only with such an understanding will they make sense of God's rescue plan. God's judgment does not mean that he is unloving. No, far from it. Love and justice are hallmarks of God's perfect, righteous character. So is God in the dock for you? Or are you in the dock? See what Paul has done? He's acquitted God. Total acquittal. Because God is wonderfully true to himself and his promises. Through his righteous justice. And his perfect character. In rescuing humankind. And that's why we can sing and we will sing. I come by the blood. And I come by the cross. Where your mercy flows from hands pierced for me. For I dare not stand on my righteousness. My every hope rests on what Christ has done. And I come by the blood. So let's sing and let's rejoice. And let's be assured that we are free from the wrath of God. That his judgment is true and real. And yet it was all on the shoulders of Jesus. And I simply trust. I trust. God has been acquitted. I'm in the dark. And I've been found not guilty. Because Christ has taken my punishment. The punishment I deserve. Let's stand and sing this song together.